Welcome to that Greaves and Rooney Sports Podcast. I'm Dan Greaves. I'm Martin Rooney. And we have another guest on today. We have Catherine Merry. Kath, uh, you will recognise her as an Olympic medalist and probably more recently for her voice uh, on the infield and on Five Live and Netball. Um, so she is uh, now a presenter and radio broadcaster, uh, but a massive character within the sport. Yeah, and um, she's got lots of words of wisdom and takes us for a bit of her journey. So let's get to it. Really now kicks away. Commonwealth champion for discus dance. Rooney gets the goal. Medal at the last four Paralympic Games. Martin Rooney ran a great race in lane one. Great character. Well done, Dan Greaves. Catherine Murray, how are you doing? I'm doing very well, um, and it's lovely to see the familiar faces of Dan Greaves and Martin Rooney, even though obviously the podcast listeners can't, I have the pleasure um, of seeing you guys. And you know what? I'm okay. I'm okay. I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit bored. I'm a little bit bored. I've realised my vocation in life wasn't to be a teacher because there's only so much phonics and Egyptian mummies and spellings I can do. But I'm good, guys. I'm good. How are you doing? How are you doing? Because you're the active training ones, right? I don't need to train anymore, so I'm all right. <laughs> I'm yeah. sick of phonics. Yeah, exactly. We've all got kids, haven't we? We've got, we've got six kids between us, haven't we, right? So, yeah, they're, yeah, keep, yeah. They're, they're, they're keeping us busy. But I'm good, thank you. How have you been finding lockdown? Is it Apart from, obviously, the, the teaching and everything, is you're not all pulling your hair out. Is it? Has it been all right for you guys? Yeah, lockdown's been okay. It's just so weird, isn't it? Every 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 little bit of facet of our lives, as you guys will, will know as well, is is dedicated by a routine, which has totally just gone out the window in in the past three uh, three months. But no, it, we're we're okay. My kids are very flexible. They're very adaptable, as you know. They kids adapt very quickly to new routines. I think it's myself that's found it the hardest. Um, in terms of the roles that we've, you know, I've had to, the hats I've had to wear and no work and teaching and entertaining, but making sure more than anything, my kids are safe and healthy. So, you know what, I've, I've really enjoyed the time in one respect because we've been as a family of four and we've never been together this much in all the years, but mm-hmm. then I'm chomp, chomping at the bit to get my identity back as more than than just a, a homeschooling mum. <laughs> it's a vacation that's, uh, it's, it's, it's a privilege to do, um, but when you've got like another life away from it, it's kind of like oh, I miss that other life. Yeah, hundred percent. And you know, you guys would have been continuing with your training, so you'll have that that those breaks in the day when you can get away from that routine. And that is what I miss. You know, I, I love my kids more than anything in the world, and I've enjoyed the time and I've spent with them. And we we are having a nice time because my kids are relaxed and and they're not demanding and they're not wanting to do things which is really helpful Mm. but I miss the other hats that I wear in terms of obviously the broadcasting the commentating the sport and just being Catherine rather than mummy can I have a biscuit you know it it gets a bit wearing after three months isn't it do you know what I mean (laughs) it does very true (laughs) my kids are at school this week it's been blissful oh Gosh, yours are how good it Dan, is. Exactly. What you're, you're yeah. a bit too small, Dad, aren't they? I know. At the moment. So Henry, yeah, Henry's back at preschool and Matilda's back at nursery. So, yeah, it's oh, well uh, yeah, it's been <laughs> it's been it. it's been good. Um, I do miss them though. Like you say, it is it it got a little bit stressful at the start because 
I didn't really know how to be a full-time dad because Amanda's obviously working from home and I was so stressed about her, like the kids just bowling in going, mummy, mummy, um, <laughs> while she's on a Zoom call like to the CEO or something um, ridiculous. <laughs> but um, so I was like, I was having to like restrain them with and like not bribe them, but just do lots more playtime than we'd normally do and like try and think of an, like cool and initiative things that I'd normally do at preschool. Um, so I had to think on my feet for a few weeks, but now it's calmed down and stuff we we plan and we do a bit more but but yeah it's just i think it's just a real strange time for everyone isn't it it's um hopefully we can get some normality back um yeah i i i hope so but how i was interested because i was going to ask you guys how how have how have you coped with it in terms of your trainings i've got visions of you like you say dan being in the garage lifting weights and the tracks have been closed how, how have you guys dealt with that because obviously dan field events martin track what have you what have you done go on dan um yeah, well, <laughs> luckily, like we've we've in the throws community, we're really cool, and um, quite a few throwers we've got on a WhatsApp group. So I, I searched high and low for just a little bit of tarmac and a field, <laughs> and um, we found a rugby club which was really cool. They let us throw there, so and it's private land, so it's not a a park or anything. Like I've seen some crazy throws been just on a a bit a bit of tarmac on the on the road and stuff. Um, but yeah, I think. I think I don't know whether or obviously nothing happened like this in your time but it's kind of I guess made made us realize and I don't know whether there has been an instance maybe as an athlete you found that you have to think on your feet a little bit and um and kind of adapt and train differently it's almost feels like when you're injured and you're having to like take precautionary steps to get back into full fitness that's kind of what it feels like so you can't really go full bore training because we haven't got the support services around us to keep us fit and healthy like medical but i don't know about you martin but yeah it's just it almost feels like you just came back from an injury and you're taking baby steps to get back into full fitness yeah like i, I ruled out the season pretty quickly when uh, once the qualification season uh, period was done and the olympics and everything was postponed i was like well I'm 33 years old. What am I racing for? Like, what am I? I why do I want to go and travel? And I can just work on stuff that I need to work on. So, like a, a rehab, prehab kind of period. I, I'd love to have done. If we could have had access to more therapy, obviously it was it wasn't the right thing to do. Uh, I'd have probably focused more on my 100 meters and stuff like that because when I've run at my best, I'm quite quick. But um, with Nick, uh, with Dakin's group, it's very much a lactic tolerance program, and like I'm fit as fits fuck to be perfectly honest but not now i was now i'm just kind of like holding off the dad bod and um <laughs> but um, yeah like it was definitely something i needed to work on so i think in the next six weeks or whatever i'm going to probably work on speed i'm going to take a, a bit of a break in august and then start training again properly in september i think a lot of people younger people need to race they need that um they need that stimulus i'm kind of someone who I've been doing it for 15 years. Like, I love racing, but unless you're running at 100%, I don't see the point of it. And I'm, I'm not 100%. So, yeah, it's so a prehab, rehab, and get ready for Tokyo 2021. Um, love that. How old is your oldest, eldest? My eldest is um, nine, going on 18. And <laughs> okay. My youngest is six, going on 15. Um, so, yeah, no, the nine and six guys, and it's, it's a... Uh, it's strange for them this summer for me because I'm never normally here. So yeah, it's yeah. a case of, you know, like a couple of weekends ago, 
obviously I was supposed to be in Eugene to do the pre-classic and I've been doing that since infield since 2009 and my son was born in 2011 so two years prior to him even being around I every May at the end of May I go to America and he literally sat there and says why are you here <laughs> and, and so so we we got the uh, Steve Prefontaine book out and I taught him a lesson on who Steve nice. Prefontaine was and all the history of Haywood Field and why it's so magical in that part of the world in the US and it is but it has been bizarre for them because they are looking at me like are you, when are you going away again because they yeah. expect it guys it, it's what they've you know I started working five six weeks after Lucas my oldest was born so he oh, doesn't wow. know he doesn't know anything different um so yeah so they're, they're at an age where they're really happy that I'm here this summer um and and it's nice but as you say I think you hit the nail on the head Dan it, it's just everything's just a bit different isn't it and we just can't wait to get back to some form of normality some form of competition and 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 seeing other sports getting back you know the football's back you know the Bundesliga came back first but the Premier League's now back and all these other sports have started we're like come on we, we need some some more meaty track and field action and we've yeah. had little bit we've had little bits haven't we with the the ultimate garden clashes that world athletics have done and obviously the impossible games last week and you know thank god for Carsten Vorholm because he sprinkles that little ray of sunshine that all mm -hmm. track and field fans love so but yeah they're at an age where they're, they're they're expected to be not to be here because they know no different. At uh, nine, how many world bests did you have already? <laughs> yeah. No, no, that's 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 Mondo. Mondo Duplantis started pole vaulting at seven weeks old. Um, I actually um, at nine, but I actually started at about nine and a half. So okay. I, I took until I was 12 to do lots of different events and get lots of UK age records and all that kind of stuff. And it's frightening, guys, to look back. And it's like nearly my kid's age now. You know, my son started. I started when my son is about his age, half a year off now. And to think that I ran so fast and I high jumped and long jumped and hurdled stupidly when I was 12, 13 years old. So, yeah, the, topping the topping the UK rankings in the under 13 rankings in seven different events um is still yeah. one of my major highlights i'm not gonna lie i absolutely love the fact That's that massive. i used and i miss it i miss it guys I, I i miss the competing and i miss that 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 young free youthful exuberance that we had when we first started right oh it's at 13 or well, 12 13 years old it's you're literally with your mates at, at the club between races you're kicking a ball about or and oh yeah i've got to go do a long jump in a bit i'll go do that <laughs> there's no warm-up it's just keep moving just keep going isn't it we had the energy though didn't we do you know what I mean it was a case oh, yeah, of, I remember those days. you know those days were fabulous and, and that's and, and I, I genuinely even when I was still competing I do miss that because I could have I look back and I think I specialized too early I okay. specialized in sprinting at 13 even though I jumped I'd high jump 169 at 12 I'd long jump 605 when I was 13 and I was doing multi-events and every coach was pulling on my time I had a high jump coach, a long jump coach, and a sprinting coach, all at those young ages. And I had to pick one that I enjoyed the most, which was sprinting. So I, I specialized in it. And I always even now think back 30 years later thinking, I wonder if I could have actually been a better high jumper than I was a sprinter or a better long jumper than I was a sprinter. But I felt a lot of pressure into specializing. And that's one of the big things now for me with young athletes is please just try as much as you can and potentially do as many events as you can for a longer period of time as possible because you don't know what you're going to excel at. But I went with what I enjoyed the most and that was running in a straight line. So that was fine. <laughs> Where did it all go wrong then? And you became a 400 meter runner. 
Well, that, that's, a, that's a long story. Um, I, I, I wanted to be the best in the world at something. And I realized that I wasn't going to be the best in the world at 100 and 200 because my speed was good. I, you know, I ran 22.8 indoors. I, I could I could run 11-2, 11-3, but that wasn't going to get me on a, a podium at a major championships. And and you guys know, and Martin in particular, my speed endurance was was really good. You know, okay. I could knock out six three hundreds and not be dying as much as Jamie Bolsh, my training partner, or Darren Campbell, my training partner, or, or Linford Christie, my coach, used to run with me. You you get through half a session, then he'd pull his hamstring. But that was an age <laughs> thing. And I realized very quickly in 1998 that I actually was just at great speed endurance. Yeah. And I was thrown yeah. into the four by four team at the European Championships in Budapest in 1998. I was put on the third leg, as we know, that's the most safe one to put a sprinter on. Mm-hmm. And I, I ran the fastest split of the of the of all the teams in the women's four by four final, and we won a bronze medal. And that's when I said, right, this is it. I'm moving to 400. So, yeah. And then the debate started with my coach, and we argued about it, discussed it, um, and eventually he let me move in the middle of the 1999 season. And I just changed events in the yeah. middle of the season and went to Seville at the World Championships and and ran pretty well. So. Yeah, it was a kind of not an enforced move, Martin, but it's just the way your career goes. And you're thinking, you know what, I need to tap into what I think I could be best at. Mm-hmm. And I just I just didn't have the basic speed, but had great speed endurance. I think it's a, it's such a a mental game as well to move up from the two to the four. Um, I was too much of a pussy to go from the four to the eight. It was just that was impossible to me. But how... Um, Obviously, you trained with Jamie, you trained with people at like Linford and stuff like that. Like Jamie took probably more steps than you did in a 300 anyway. But <laughs> was it? did it help having that yeah. kind of those elite athletes around you to kind of push you in the right direction anyway? Oh, 100 percent. 100 percent. We we know that. Right. If you if you can train with a group of people who have the same ambitions of you, as you and the same drive and desire as you and the same size ego as you in mm. terms of wanting to be the, the 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 biggest in the roost and that's not meant in a big headed show-off type way but I can sum it up by saying when I won my bronze medal in Sydney over the 400 meters Darren who I've known you know going on 30 nearly 35 years now said to me there's no way on this god's earth that I'm not going to beat the medal that Kath got in the 400 because he'd never hear the end of it so when he won a, when he won a silver medal in the men's 200 one of the first things he said was jeez whiz thank god for that I had to beat I had to beat what you did or I just wouldn't hear the end of it and when you have that camaraderie yeah. respect and that group you're pushing to be the best in the group and you want to be the best in the group. So, of course, it helps massively. But then saying that, I've got athletes and friends in years gone by who love training on their own because that's what they do. You talk to Carsten Vorholm when they said to him last week after he ran the world best over 300 hurdles, what was it like? You're on your own. There was no one else in the race, Carsten. And he's like, I train like that. Mm-hmm. That's how I train. And that's so yeah. it's no different to me. I thrive off that. So everybody's different. And you have to find what works for your personality with a group and a coach as well. Yeah, definitely. I don't think we can't uh, not talk about that epic race in 2000, Sydney 2000. I can remember watching it because I've got to admit the men's discus, I think final or qualification was on mm. at the same time. But um, mm. I've, I've heard you talk passionately about it before. Um, it's it's just, you know, amazing to think that, you know, 112,000 people and globally millions are watching that. Like 
just talk us through some of your emotions on that day leading into it. Obviously, you're fresh into the to the event. Was there any doubt in your mind that you were not going to win that medal? Um, that's a good point, Dad, because it was, as, as I previously mentioned, I only moved to the 400 in the middle of the 1999 season when Linford, my coach, said, for God's sake, just, just move then, just change. And so 2000 was my first full year of 400 metre running. And I'd worked out very quickly how not to run the 400 metres. Um, and I was lucky like that because I'd worked out the best way for me to run it quite quickly, which yeah. was good. So was I hoping to, to win a medal in my first full year of a new event? <sighs> Probably. You look back and you go, no, don't be so silly. We know how long it takes to ingrain. But yeah. no, no, I, I was there, man. I, I, I thought I had a chance of winning it. And, and yeah. I, I, I went into that thinking, if anyone's yeah. going to beat me in this final, you're going to have to run your backside off to do it. And again, that wasn't being cocky. That wasn't being big headed. But I had no pressure and no expectation because I wasn't really supposed to do anything. Um, I don't think I helped myself when I, I beat Marie-Jo Perec in her first race back earlier in the season. And everyone was like, whoa. You know, Cass beating Marie Jo, you know, she won the Olympics yeah. in 96. I had to remind people that it wasn't the Marie Jo Perec of 1996. You know, she was no. coming back after a long time off. But it's still um, Olympic champion. It's a good scalp. Yeah, oh, so. I, I, I was I was chuffed. I, I yeah. was chuffed because I'd ran, a, I'd ran a personal best to beat her in France, which was nice. Um, but no, I, I, I had it. And I, so I did have my own genuine expectations of, of doing well in that race um, because I was just picking up the event and progressing as the season of, of as 2000 went on. But, I, you know, guys, I had my downs. I, I raced in Gateshead over 300 metres a, a few weeks before, and I was sick. And, and I think David Coleman said it on the BBC commentary because I got absolutely smashed over 300 metres. And he said, Catherine Mary's gone right off the boil. And I had yeah. because I'd been yeah. flying and everything started to go wrong and I got poorly. So I ran the Olympics on antibiotics. I had an issue, but you just get on with it. That's what we do, right? Yeah. You can, you know, the Olympics isn't going to wait for anybody. They'll they'll change a timetable for Michael Johnson and other people, but they don't wait. They're not going to stop. And so now I thought, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have yeah. a pop at this and, and yeah. obviously would leave Australia very quickly. If I was actually going to, ha if I'd beaten Kathy, then that would have been a different story. But, but no, it was amazing, and it, it was. I had expectations on myself, and I genuinely believed. Give me half a chance, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna try and win this. I wasn't running for silver or bronze. You look at the race back. I've got a picture. Oh, it's on a podcast, but you can't see. I've got a picture in my study here of, of that final finish line that they produced and we came off the, the top bend in 300 meters in a straight line mm, and it was just yeah. going to be a case of whose wheels fell off soonest and it was mine my wheels fell off in the flew into the infield then Lorraine Graham started to fall off and Kathy's didn't because Kathy was the best in the world and quite rightly became Olympic champion um I've got to admit I, I was screaming for Donna Fraser that day it's all <laughs> right man, that's, that's that's the Croydon connection there. You see she, she's she's from the exactly the same area as me. So she's like round the corner from my parents' house. That's where she grew up. And as a kid, she was like the guy, the girl at Croydon Harriers, the woman that you were kind of like, oh, that's that's it. This is your superstar. Um, yeah. So I was kind of hoping you'd both medal. So I was kind of, I, I kind of, <laughs> I was very young. I went, I thought that like, the Australian, she had the suit on. So I was like, go for her. <laughs> and I was like, right, two Brits behind her, cool. And I was screaming, me and my mum were screaming for Donna. And like Donna's uh, someone who was a bit of my idol growing up. So like, I, what was your relationship like as, as competitors as well as like obviously in the relays and stuff like that? 
Oh, mate, it was myself and Donna uh, go back a hell of a long way. And I'm talking, we're going back to 1989, 1990. You know, me and Donna have got a a great relationship on and off the track. We'd gone through the whole junior system together. You know, I I started internationally as a junior at 13. And obviously you can't do that anymore. And and I had six years on the the international junior team. I had um, three European junior championships, two world junior championships. And when I started in 1989, I then went on to 1990 and I met Donna. And 1991, I met Donna. I'd raced with Donna. We'd run four by one relays together. We'd won medals at junior championships together. So we kind of went along this journey. And Kathy Freeman, incidentally, was on that journey with us as well because we started racing and I started racing Kathy Freeman in, in the 90s in junior matches in Horsham over 200 metres. So myself, Donna, and Kathy went on this journey together towards the year 2000. And we had a, all of us had a great relationship, a lot of respect for each other. And I still have now to this day for Donna, of course, not just because of our history and our relationship, but because of what she's doing now within, within, within British athletics and what she's promoting and the platform that she has. But it was a weird situation because I couldn't even tell you that Donna had made that final because we had four rounds in Sydney in four consecutive days. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was just so focused on what I was doing. I couldn't even, you know, I knew I was in lane three in that final. I didn't know what, Don, what lane Donna was in. I didn't know what time she'd ran. I didn't know what Kathy was in. I didn't know what Kathy had ran because I was just focused on myself. But yeah. I think it's fair to say that I ran my fastest ever time, as did Donna in that Olympic final. But at that moment in time, I ran the most near perfect race that I was capable of running to when I ran 49.72. And I know if you speak to Donna, she'll look back and say she ran 49.79, but didn't run her near perfect, tactically best race that she could have run. But the difference is one of us ended up seven hundredths of a second in front of another person and the medals were decided. She's a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful woman. She, I just, I just, I just love her so much, and I just wish she could have been on that podium in bronze, and I could have been in silver. <laughs> That'd be perfect. That'd be there happy. you go. Oh, that's it. But the four hundred is a cruel mistress. It's uh, you can run your perfect race and not get it right, and you can run your the worst race of the year and somehow it comes comes well. Like it happens all the time. So, um, but just uh, what was obviously you you went to London twenty twelve. Were you working in London 2012? Yes, I was. Five Live, yeah. Five Live. Were you in the stadium for like um, stuff like Dave Weir um, and like, obviously the Super Saturday and stuff like that? Yeah. What was the noise like in comparison between the two? Um, or could you even hear it as you're racing? Oh, my God. No, you, you heard it. In, in Sydney, it was... It's funny, isn't it? You can probably look back on your best performances, guys. And if you close your eyes, you can just relive it in, yeah. in like it's in front of you. And I can do that now. And let's not forget... It's 20 years this year since Sydney. Um, yeah, I know. I did it all at 15. It's amazing. Um, and, um, it's, and, and the same the same in Sydney. I've never heard, and this might be, Dan, you with me. I'm an Aston Villa fan. Yeah. So it might be because I've never been in a stadium with 112,000 people since. I don't know. Yeah. But I've never heard that many people go quite so quickly when the, the starter said. And then when the gun goes, erupts so loudly. Yeah instantaneously i've never had that in a race martin i've never had that i've never had a gun go and i've come out the blocks and heard the raucous noise like it was in sydney london was different because i was working there and i took my cans off when i was working because that was that 45 minute period wasn't it 
in mm. talking about the Olympics now, that was just sustained madness, absolute sustained madness from when the, when the three, you know, when Mo, Greg and Jess were doing their thing. That noise was sustained over a long period of time. It wasn't as loud as Sydney, but Sydney yeah. was more impactful because it was a short space of time. But then you yeah. go to the Paralympics and you get the likes of Dave Weir coming down the home straight. And, and, and that noise was on the same level as, as it was for the able-bodied games. It was absolutely outstanding. Whereas Sydney was just that little one moment of just before, 49 and a half seconds, and then the, the roar afterwards. So it was just more compact. And Jonathan Edwards was on the back straight, winning the triple jump at the time um, in Sydney on that magic oh, Monday. Yeah. Um, and he had he had roars and going, woo, he's going to win gold. But that time period for Cathy's race before, during and after was, I've never had anything like it. But London came close. Don't get me wrong. London came close with our, the three medals that the guys got and then for some of the performances at the Paras, definitely. I, I think when you're trackside and it's all at you, like, does it feel like a wall of emotion hitting you? Or, like, I, when we went into the stadium at London 2012, like, Dan will tell you, like, it hits you hard. And I think because we knew it was for us. So I suppose when it's for Kath, um, for, uh, what's her name? Kathy. Kathy, Kathy. I was getting mixed up there. She, um, there's, a lot like, of, there's a lot of us. <laughs> like, because it was for her, really, I suppose you can ride it. Whereas when it's all at you, it's a completely different thing. That's what I can, like, what Dave Weir did in 2012. And then oh. he knew the noise was for him. And the way he handled that situation, like, like his balls must have been fucking massive. But like, did it, oh, 100%, did it 100%. And that's the same. Look at the, you know, Dan, we were there, you know, looking back, look at the Johnny, Pe Johnny Peacock race, you know, Johnny mm. Peacock just stood there on the on, on, on those Paralympics and, you know, with his with his finger on his lips, silencing the crowd because they were just so excited. And he knew that all of that energy at that moment in time was thrown at him. And I, I speak about this sometimes because people say, oh, you know, what was it like with Kathy? Everything was on Kathy, as you say, Martin. Everybody yeah. else was just riding. We were there for the ride. We were blessed to be in a race like that. But we had absolutely nothing to lose. Whereas Kathy, who'd lit the flame, who'd been the face of the game, she was Australia's only genuine gold medal chance in track and field. She carried that weight of expectation and everything was on her. Did you use that at all? Oh, 100%. Did you like, yeah. like lean on that, like maybe psychologically and think, well, do you know what? She's She's got to perform. I've just got to do what I do. And, and you know, if it's enough, it's enough. You know, yeah. did you did you just think, oh, yeah, I haven't got that pressure I've, I know, I, I know, and I back myself. And where she's yeah. got, she's got to do it, hasn't she? And like, you know, I know she's got to do it for herself, but she's also, like you say, got the weight of a nation on her shoulders for one moment in time for like forty-nine seconds. Yeah, hundred percent, Dan. It was very much a case of the only pressure I had was on myself because I knew what I expected. Um, mm -hmm. The last, the last words my coach Linford said to me, "I'll keep it clean," was, you know, don't cock it, don't cock it up um thanks for that coach yeah. um whereas so i only had the expectations on myself whereas kathy as you say was carrying it for the 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 the, the nation um and obviously with her aboriginal roots as well it meant so much to kathy that i just had to just we just rode on the back of that because and i walking around as like as i was walking in there were loads of cheers you can imagine you walk into a stadium with 112,000 people they see kathy and they shout go on kathy go on kathy and i'm like well, okay I'll, I'll take a few of them <laughs> because, yeah. you know 
Uh, you know, I heard go on Christmas. I heard Linford's voice in the stadium because Merry Christmas. And I, that was just like, I was just like an embarrassed child. I was like, oh God, yeah. just, just stop it. Man. That's <laughs> leave just, it, I just, just leave it That's it. Just, just, I just kept on walking, but I lost my focus when he shouted. I didn't know where he was in the stadium. So it took me by surprise. But no, we just, we just let every bit of pressure heap on the shoulders of Kathy. Yeah. <laughs> and, and she took it and ran with it. And she ran her second fastest time ever to win that um, Olympic final. And it was a fairy tale because everything about the whole thing was just right. But then people equate that to London 2012, going back quickly to that saying, wow, that must have been what it must have felt like for Mo, Jess and Greg. And I say, well, yes, they had pressure, Jess especially on the opening morning of the heptathlon. And mm. Mo did because he was expected to potentially win. Greg didn't because I don't think he was expected to pull out the performance as he did. But the major difference is, Cathy shared that with nobody. Guys, True. no other athlete in Australia had that. The British press could dabble it between a couple of our stars, couldn't they? Cathy shared that with nobody. And, and But her personality made her adapt to that situation. If you know Cathy, she is lovely. She's just a simple thing that likes to run. That's what she said. And that laid back, nice attitude made it all help her and go over ahead and deliver a performance. Mm. And you saw that when she sat on the track and took her hood off. And Donna yeah. went over to her. I went over to her. I couldn't even tell you what I said. But it was along the lines of, yeah, go you. You deserve it. You're the best. But I swore a lot in it, I think, because it was like, yeah, yeah of course, you you're the yeah. best. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's, um, yeah, you could, I think what I took from her thing was just the relief. I think that it was done. Yeah, you can just see the, like, the pressure just like, drain away. You can, yeah, yeah, as soon like, as she <sighs> took that cape off, it's like. I'm done. Like that's took it. a cape um, off. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It was. I literally right. And you know that she'd never worn that. We, she said afterwards that she'd never worn it in training or competition before. It was the, it was it was something that was just done for the Olympic final. And, and I can't okay. speak for Donna, but I was in lane three and Kathy was in lane six. And when they, you know, you take your kit off and you put it in, and we, I just glanced across and she just pulled this hood off and it's like, what the hell is that? Yeah. Do you know what I mean? What 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 is this? It obviously did her no harm whatsoever. Yeah, but what I think. To play around? Yeah, you know, she 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 was with the greatest utmost of respect, proper, proper hardcore, because she she took all that and she delivered it. And you're right, Martin, we, we never saw a race properly afterwards again, because what's she going to do? You know, you're not touching the 47-6 world record. You know, mm. you've you've won the Olympics, you've won the world championships, you've you've done it in your own backyard. You're going to be a legend and an icon forever in one of the most historic Olympic finals ever. And um, she never came back properly after that. And it doesn't surprise me at all. No. You just touched quickly. I, you know, that world record. Yeah. Can we just get rid of it? Because <laughs> like, that's the question, isn't it? Who is the real world record holder? That's yeah. the question. Does it stand as it stands or does it Oh, it's, it wasn't the talk. Do you remember that, guys? I think it was at the turn of the century, wasn't it, when we went from 1999 to 2000, where there was talk of just wiping all the world records and kind of started again, which was never going to fly. No. Because I remember Jonathan Edwards saying, well, hang on, <laughs> excuse yeah. me. Yeah. I think you'll find that my, my world triple jump record is, is quite safe. Thank you very much. So you can't do that. But, yeah, it's... Uh, well, like I say, I, I did an interview the other week, guys, when NASA, obviously our new world champion over 400 metres, has been provisionally suspended for missing three out of competition doping tests. And somebody said to me, oh, what, what did she run? And I said, oh, the third fastest time in history. They went, did she? I said, yeah, no one's ran quicker since about 1985. 
And they said, OK, so that doesn't look good then, does it? Now she's been suspended. And I said, no, it doesn't look good at all. Of course it doesn't. The, the sport no. doesn't need anything like this. No. Um, they said, oh, what did you run? And I said, at my best, before I got injured and fell apart, I ran 49.5. And they said, oh, OK. And I went, yeah, I, I was finishing Monday night and, you know, she was already on Wednesday morning. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's like, it's like, the gap's like that. And I had the pleasure of being the first female announcer at a world championships in Doha mm. um, in, in, and, and calling her race. I called her race in the stadium and I swear to God, I didn't sleep properly that night from what I'd seen. I could not get my head around the 48-1 and how she ran it. And yeah, I don't know. So the world record, who does it really belong to? Who knows? And how do you go forward and rectify that to, to make the records more potentially believable to some people? There's the million dollar question, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think for a long time, I looked at Sanya Richards Ross and said, right, that's probably it. That's for me. I think it was like 48.8. She ran on 48.9. I was like, that seems a bit more. Uh, I don't know. She just seemed to be like, she like yourself, she'd come through as a junior and she progressed and progressed and progressed. And she was a natural runner. And mm -hmm. that's why I thought like it was the top of the sport. And now when I see Shawnee Miller-Weber, I'm like, yeah, she, she's a six foot, whatever, six foot two, six foot three. And she's a, an incredible athlete and she's got the range from the one, the two, the four. Um, but for NASA to come out and just do what she did, I was a bit like, oh, come on, man. <laughs> like, it's, fu it's funny, though, isn't it? Because if, if, if it's funny how you as people, not just me, you guys as athletes as well in the sport or out the sport, but we'll make a decision instantaneously, right or wrong, on what we think somebody is. Do you know what I mean? If yeah. you ask the majority of people in track and field, do they believe that NASA is is clean they'll say no but then it'll be like well what do you base that on because she yeah. can look she had she had run throughout mm -hmm. the season she she competed in diamond league she'd she was progressing from well. coming onto the sport she'd been good so you have to kind of always look at it from both sides because everybody's always very quick rightly or wrongly as it will ever it will turn yeah. out to be um have an opinion on what is going on and that's exactly the same as what's happening now with Christian Coleman and his understanding of the way the, the outer competition testing works and how other people see the outer competition testing works. And that for me is a flawed problem with the system, which needs to be more rigid and it needs to be more structured and it needs to be less complicated and simplified because you cannot have, sorry, I'm digressing. You cannot have two world-class pole vaulters, one in Europe and one in the USA working on different systems in a different testing regime. Yeah. It, 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 and so now with the sports being consumed with NASA and it's being consumed by Coleman. But how many people will put their hands up and say, Christian Coleman's missed four tests in the last 15, 16 months. Of course, he's a cheat. He's an American sprinter. But actually, look at the situation and what he's trying to say. I'm not saying he is a reason, but it's not that straightforward, is it, guys? And you guys right. know because you're in that every single day and you have to potentially defend yourself and your sport when you do something good. The onus is always on you to prove you're not cheating rather than the other way around. Yeah. Yeah, we, I'm uh, of the belief that the education over there is not set up properly because the Americans seem to all think like, oh, yeah, you should be able to get a phone call and stuff. Like that. that's, that's, not, that's not part of the rules. It's against the rules. You're not and, meant to get a yeah. warning. And if, if it happens, then it's just, you know, it's like one rule for one and one rule for another. It should, yeah. It should be a blanket WADA, USADA, UCAD, you whichever go. the independent one. The, it should, all should work simultaneously for athletes across the a world. A hundred percent. And that is, and I haven't really said much this week on the whole Coleman thing, because all I've done, guys, is I've just read. And I have read some very interesting things and I've read some very interesting threads 
of people and athletes. And when you are having a discussion between the likes of Olympic champion Katharina Stefanidi, the American world-class pole vaulter Sandy Morris, and our own Holly Bleasdale having a discussion about the differences in the system and how they are tested, it's like, no, it has to be more rigid, it has to be structured, and it has to be simplified and put into place that everybody sings from the same hymn sheet. Because mm. I'm not defending Christian Coleman, only he knows. But if his understanding of a system because of the way it's been implemented previously is one way, and then that's backed up by Sandy saying, well, I've been saved by my camera doorbell because I, my testers normally come in the beginning of the hour, but they didn't. So I went to the grocery store, they rang my camera doorbell and I got back in time to do a test. Eh? So you've got athletes thinking that they can go out and be called and, and, and be called back within an hour. And then you've mm. got other athletes like you guys or anywhere else in the world that sits their backside down for an hour, an hour. in the house or yeah, a given exactly. time. That's not right. That's no. not right. And, and that's on the emphasis of the athletes to take control of that and also of the governing bodies to put the same system and the same rules in place. Otherwise, it's it's laughed at. Yeah. I can tell you, my mates are laughing at this. My non-athletic friends are laughing and going, hang on. So they can go and do that and expect a doorbell. But you can't. It's like, you know what? That's what needs to need, needs a little bit more unification, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. Yeah. And I think um, it seems to be quite a lot easier in the US. So like. I don't see how they're still missing tests. <laughs> like it seems to be more lax. It seems to be and, more And I heard they only get it. tested for six months a year as well, apparently. Um, well, there you go, Dan. There you go. And, and, yeah. and, there, and, therein, and therein lies the issue that all the different things you've heard. And then you've got other athletes coming up saying, when I train in this country, athletes get given a 24-hour warning in advance and they're all taken yeah. to the same play. Yeah. You have a whole mix of different stories and it's the same sport and these people no it's it's and but all it does as we know is put the sport in the spotlight at this moment in time in a not Wrong. very good situation yeah. and it needs clearing up if if, if if i park on wl lines i could get a parking ticket right by one what's his name by one dude that hands them out or another guy could come up to me smiling going you know what just don't do it again love and that's what's happening you've got you've got testers doing different things in different places. You've got yeah. some testers that will uh, ring an athlete. Sandy was saying, Sandy Morris put openly on Twitter that one time her group trained somewhere else. There was a school event on. So the tester rang through and said, oh, just bring, just bring your group down. I'll test you here. Whereas you get another, you get another officious, official that will do everything and say, no, you're done. You weren't in there. I, was, I looked for you. I couldn't find you. So you don't. So wait, come on now. You have to make it rigid and you have to make it, there can't be any ambiguity in it. It has to be done. You guys, it's tough enough as it is, right? And everybody's yeah, doing what they can and doing the best. And some people need to take the whereabouts system more seriously. Some people yeah. need to educate themselves better. And that's the athletes and the sport itself, in my opinion. It's, it's, just, it's just embarrassing. And I say that probably it's just yeah. embarrassing at the moment because you can't differentiate between somebody who's actually making a mistake and everybody's views, they base their experience on themselves. So it's like, why don't they do this? Why don't they do this? Out? Why? Do, that's not your life. You can't tell somebody what to mm. do and and, ha, and, ha, and how to uh, balance their life and what their lifestyle is. But everyone needs to see from the same hymn sheet. Gee whiz, that would yeah. help. Yeah, I think I think it's just uh, from an. I feel like it's a very athlete-friendly system. As it's just up to the athlete to keep on top of it and I learned the lesson very early in my career I've talked about it before where I missed two tests in my first year when I was 17 and 18 and I was on on that last strike kind of thing if I got missed another test I was fucked um and I learned that lesson at a very young age so I think maybe it's just the education is not there like you said it's just the respect for the system and the understanding of 
you are meant to be available to test. I think Di Green put it perfectly in his thread, which was very funny. And <laughs> it's like Coleman said, he was, he'll take a test every day. It's like just one hour a day. That's all we need. And he just stay yeah, there. Yeah, but play, play in, playing devil's advocate. And again, this isn't defending Chris, this could be to anybody. Playing devil's mm-hmm. advocate. But what if your understanding of those rules, because you've been tested or done in a certain way, or your understanding because you've been told is different to that? Because I, 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 I agree with that. To, a, to an extent, and unless somebody like Sandy Morris had come out and put on public and an open forum, well, actually, I, my, my doorbell saved my ass a couple of times because yeah. my testers normally come at the beginning of an hour. So they didn't come yeah. at the beginning of an hour. So I went to the grocery store and then the dude came, rang my doorbell, it popped up on my phone and I got back in time. So what if an athlete, I'm saying this to anybody, what if an athlete's understanding of the system isn't the right one or it isn't the same as everybody else's i, I, think, yeah. I think it's just the education I, like i know that a, des- a tester can come at five say i've got an hour slot they can come at 55 minutes and i still have to be there that's yeah yeah but that, that's what i'm saying that's what i'm saying yeah. martin that's your understanding and what if an american's understanding and i'm not saying it's the case like i say but what if yeah. their understanding from what Coleman's saying and from what Sandy Morris is saying and what other athletes say what if their understanding of that is different because uh, I, you, you wouldn't, you wouldn't breeze down to your local Audi if you knew that your slot was between seven and eight in the morning you're not breezing down for some eggs for a pancake in between that seven and eight but I'm reading stuff this week that's been to me absolutely fascinating mm, yeah. how, how the hell are you why are you breezing off shopping or why are you going to the grocery store or why are you doing because they obviously think that that's okay because that's either what's happened in the past or that's what's been done. So yeah. you don't make things discretionary. You don't yeah. make things mandatory no. or not. You make I it think, rigid and you tighten it up, man. You tighten it up. I think I also, yeah, it loses some complacency as well on the athlete because if they do get a phone call or they've had prior knowledge to it or they're relying on technology as a, an indicator, um, they'll be like, okay, that's fine. I, would, I can just carry on with my life. I know that I'm going to get a notification if somebody is at my, at my house, which is completely the wrong way, um, in, yeah. Yeah, in my opinion. But that, that. It is, 100%. And I, mm. I agree with that. And I was talking to my husband about it before I came on and spoke to you guys today. And I'm like thinking, okay, I've been retired quite a long time. But and my system was completely different to that for what for what you guys do now. Completely different. And what would I expect to do if I was still competing now? I would happily, like you guys, I'll give you an hour of my day. I'm a very organized person, very organized. And I know I can take care of those things. But obviously not everybody in the world is organized. So maybe need a bit more guidance, as you say, Martin, or education. But I'm thinking, all right, you come to my house at this time. I'll sit there. And you knock on my door and you keep knocking on my door. And if five or 10 minutes before the end of that hour, you want to phone me and say to me, where are you? And I'm like, well, I'm in my loft or I'm in my back garden. If I'm in my house and you knock on my door, ring my phone five, 10 minutes before, and I don't come downstairs, open the door and say, hey, what's happening? Then it's a missed test. I really do think I really do think you need to give a slight flexibility with the way people are and the way people go through their life there has to be some flexibility in that but if you ring my ass 10 minutes before the hour and I'm not on the vicinity of my house or where I said it one I'm missing a test yeah but if oh, yeah. but but and so I don't I don't I don't disagree with the phone call at the appropriate time in that given hour okay. you don't phone yeah. them and tell me on your way put the kettle on and yeah I'll have yeah. I'll have a nice scone yeah. with butter and all that but I just think that you need to have some flexibility and 
and, and work with the athletes. It's a two way street for me in, yeah. in in my opinion. And and we live in a world of millennials, don't we? You know, these people that, you know, you guys, well, we're a bit older, but, you know, they don't want to spend an hour of the day, which they should. But they need to be yeah. told that's the way it is. Don't flex, flex the rules for anybody. Mm-hmm. Don't give one rule for somebody and not for somebody else. But unfortunately, the man in the blue ribbon event who's being tested left, right and centre is is not doing it the right way. But is that because he doesn't know what the right way is or is that because yeah. he's cheating? See, yeah. or maybe he knows too much. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. But my thing is, right, if I, if I was cheating, I, I ain't missing the test. Do you no. know what I'm saying? Yeah. If, I, I, if I'm smart enough to be cheating, the last thing I'm doing is missing the test. Because I'm one step ahead of you, so yeah. I know exactly what I need to do not to miss a test. So it's usually it's as complicated as ever. If you've already missed a couple of tests, surely your ass is tight now, and you're on everything, and you're being careful. Yeah. So I've got yeah, I've got, I haven't yeah, got you are. No, 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 and don't get me wrong, guys. I'm not on here. I'm not. I'm not giving sympathy to anybody. I'm just looking at this whole week since this is broke. I've just looked at the whole thing and thought, you know what? What if this this is now transpiring that this is the way that they do things? And other athletes have come out and said that. If it was just him on his own, you'd be like, oh. But I don't know. Like I say, I'm not I'm not saying he is I'm not saying he is clean. I'm not saying he's not got anything to hide. All I'm saying is, wow, his understanding of the system that you guys have to follow is not the same. Yeah. And if he's bopsing out going to do shopping, why is he doing that? Is he disrespectful? Is he cheating? Or does he think the rules are different? And then other athletes come out and defend and say the same thing. I'm popping to the grocery store because they haven't come when they normally come. Bing gong. Oh, it's on my phone. Back in a few minutes. I've done my test. What? That's that's all not that's all not a good place to be, is it really? You have to. uh, You can't have different rules for different people. He obviously doesn't believe in Santa because he went Christmas shopping, didn't he? So. (laughs) But he could have gone to the grocery store. Somebody else went. See what I'm saying? Where he's actually gone, in my opinion, isn't the yeah. issue. The fact is that he thinks he can go out of his house in that hour and something yeah. or somebody's told him that that's acceptable oh, no. because he's done it before, which he should never have done in the first place. Education, Martin, you've hit the nail on the head, mate. Education, rigid structure. And I've, a I've put it on street. my Instagram. That I think he's going to get off. I think he'll get off of it. I think uh, he seems to be, he, his thing is cast out on everybody else and it'll work. But anyway, leave that alone. Yeah, but, yeah. but, but me about but, fighting talk. I want to talk to you no, about gonna... fight and talk because I love listening to you on that when you jump on that with Colin Murray. <laughs> fight, fighting, fighting. This might be my only other business next time, actually. Yeah, the unification. Um, no, uh, <laughs> fighting talk is fabulously fun. Um, it, you, yeah, I like it. You have to have a certain personality type, I think, to go on BBC Five Live fighting talk, which is one that you can take the mick out yourself but then also not have a problem with people taking the mick out of you. For people that don't know what it is, it's basically a kind of uh, a verbal sparring of, of four different people. They could be sports people. They can be pol- um, uh, comedians. And we're asked like kind of questions to win points. And I love it because it's fast paced. There's a lot of banter involved. It's extremely funny. Um, and no, I love it. I, I, I love it because you have to be a little bit edgy. Do you know what I mean? You can't you can't sit on the fence on fighting talk. And and the many times I've gone in to defend the indefensible and had to basically slag off my beloved Aston Villa, Dan, and, and basically <laughs> say, I think one of the questions once was Aston Villa should not be allowed back into the Premier League because they're just not good enough. And I have to defend <laughs> that. I have to defend the indefensible. And, it, and it kills me, man. It kills me. <laughs> yeah. 
But no, I, I love it, Martin. It's, it's a great show. And, and Colin is Colin's a, a broadcasting legend. I love Colin Murray. We're very good friends and, and he's the perfect host for it. It's good fun. Yeah. I think um, on that kind of broadcasting note, um, not just because you're here, but you are my favourite broadcaster and commentator. You're very I, kind. Agreed. And I think, I think that's um, because you're my lucky charm. So every time you've commented, yes. I've actually thrown really well. <laughs> And I always look to events that you're on. And I'm like, yes, Kath's commentating. <laughs> I'm bound to throw well today. But I think, like, oh. as um, maybe too elderly or slash more how do distinguished athletes coming towards the end of our career, um, veterans, veterans. That's yes, exper- experience, Dan. You're experienced, man. Yeah, I think like, <laughs> like looking at it from our point of view, like you've just taken what you want to do with your retirement and run with it and um what i think i'd like to know is did you have a plan like um how did you find hanging up the spikes converting to like a full-time life away from the track even though you're partially in there and um and doing commentating how did it feel um and i guess for anyone listening like um any athletes listening like how easy was it transitioning into a more kind of normal lifestyle yeah it's a good question danny uh, there wasn't a plan um, because the plan was still to be running. Um, and I was one of those athletes that was unfortunate or which is more common than not, isn't it? That, that didn't get to retire on my own terms. Mm. So basically injury forced me into retirement. So after my one and only full year of 400 meter running in 2000, um, I never got another full season. You know, I only had one full season, which went really well, um, but then fell apart in the middle of 2001, um, ended the year as the fastest 400 meter runner for a woman in the world but fell apart just before the world championships but that gave me the springboard then to sit on the bbc couch um and talk about the women's 400 meters and all that kind of stuff so i fell into broadcasting while still competing when i was injured so then when i eventually decided to retire because i'd left no stone unturned i'd kind of started doing it already so i just kind of carried on if that okay. made sense. Yeah, there, was a, okay. there, was a, there was a break in between because I moved to America. Um, I left my newly bought house and moved to America where I knew nobody to try and get fit and get back. And I tried that for three and a half years and that didn't work. And I eventually retired in 2005 and came back to the UK, but managed to pick up because of the medal that I'd won in Sydney. You know, as an individual Olympic medalist in a sprint event which is is the door that opens opportunities to talk about. And I like to think I can string a couple of words together. I can give insight with the experience that I've got. And so what happened was the the broadcasting opportunities and the hosting opportunities just started to come more frequently. And before I knew it, I was like, oh, I'm just now in 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 a different world. And I didn't I didn't find it very hard at all. I'm I'm very straightforward and I tried everything I could not to retire. I tried everything I could to get back to the form I had in 2000, 2001, and I couldn't. And so I went to the track one day, put my bag down and said to my coach, America, you know, I'm done. I'm not doing this anymore. And he went, what do you mean today or forever? I said, no, I'm done. And I retired and I, never, and I never went back. It wasn't a plan. I didn't wake up over my Weetabix and decide to retire. No. Yeah. But my transition was a very smooth one in terms of being given the opportunities to do stuff but was extremely hard work, as we know with anything in life, it's very hard work to make something look easy. Yeah. But I was I never took any opportunity I had in broadcasting for granted. And it took me probably four or five years at least, guys, to get over the fact of being 
an Olympic medalist who now talks about the sport to lose that and become a broadcaster. Now people in the, who are younger in the generation you were talking about, Dan, a lot of people don't know that I used to run. So if I talk yeah. to some people and they say, you, I know your voice. Do you do, did you do the Commonwealth Games, the BBC? Do you commentate? I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. They go, oh, wow, did you used to run yourself? <laughs> <laughs> no, I swear. Just at the weekends. <laughs> yeah, most days ending in a Y like that. And they go, I go, yeah, I used to do a bit. And they're like, oh, okay. Yeah, because you sound like you know what you're talking about. I said, well, that's, yeah, maybe a little bit. But I love that. But it took me flipping ages, guys, to, to kind of cross over that. Yeah. But no, it wasn't hard, Dan. It wasn't hard. Mentally was the hardest thing. Yeah. If they could ask me mentally, I could not kind of get my head around the fact of not training six days a week, five hours a day. And I lost my identity in terms of that because I didn't know what to do with myself. I was a bit scared thinking I might have to retire at some point. What am I going to do? What am I going to do? And all athletes have that. But I luckily just picked up the broadcasting because of those 49.72 seconds in Sydney and it changed the direction of my life 100 percent it oh, did wow. it did if I if I if I hadn't have won that medal in Sydney I'd have literally been the really good junior who nearly became a really good senior and I'd have been one of those type athletes but you win an individual medal in a track event it's it, it does change the direction of your life yeah. and I like to think I've, I've become I'm, I'm quite good at what I do because you are then, very good, yes. Yeah, but that only so. Yeah, thanks, mate. That yeah. only, but it only lasts so long. Do you know what I mean? Unless you work yeah. in football, you can you can know the world of football, which we all do, and you can go on telly and you can be crap. But because you were good at football, you still get asked back and you still get your opinions yeah. heard and you yeah. still get a platform. And no other sport for me really does that. Athletics to a degree, but not massively. So you have to kind of bring something to the table and be half decent at it to get given another opportunity, especially when you get to my age. You know, I'm flying towards 50 and all of a sudden you'll have athletes who are going to retire. You have to, and, and going to become the more fresh faces. You have to be good at what you do and put the time yeah. and effort in. And that's why I think most people don't realize sometimes is is the hard work and effort that goes into the, the, the infield hosting, the in-stadium commentating or the TV or radio commentary. But I work a lot. I like I I'll only use about 10 or 15 percent of what I prep. And people okay. laugh at me who I work with. They'll say, why do you prep so much? I said, that's my safety net. Yeah. Listen, if, if something goes goes pear shaped or if I need something, my confidence in my work is having stuff in front of me that I can absolutely spout a whole load of crap about anything at any given time because I'm a typical Virgo and I work and I work hard. At it. And I think that shows. Right. I think that shows people in sport who work who will put yeah. a lot of work in and those that don't. Yeah, yeah, you can tell in the podcast, like Dan's really professional and I'm like, like winging it the whole way through. <laughs> yeah. But that's not, that's like, that's the yin and yang, right? No, yeah. that, 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 that's, that's, the, that's the balance of how it works. And that's, joking aside, right, that is how you approach, in my opinion, that is how you approach things like broadcasting, like hosting. You have to have a balance of good, solid statistical information mm -hmm. balanced with, the human nature and aspect of actually passion, knowing your sport, digressing, being flexible enough to 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 go off. You know, I've interviewed people where you don't you like me, you can't shut them up. But then I've also interviewed people where they've given you one word answers and you're literally there going, well, looking at them thinking, well, thanks for that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you could have given you could have given me a little bit more. So you have to adapt to be flexible and have a laugh and enjoy it and, and have that balance. You have to. Because people pick yeah. up on that. They pick up on yeah. the passion and radio especially because they got nothing visual. 
You no. really have to paint a picture on radios or podcasts like this because no one can see you. You have to make sure it comes through with your voice, your energy, your passion and your knowledge. Yeah, that's, I think I think that's why a lot of athletes start listening to you. Um, and when you, you're on the infield, you bring something that you show your experience and you bring a passion to it that the athletes have. Um, yeah. And maybe that doesn't come across with like you and you and are probably the best two at it uh, on the tracks. So I love like that relationship that you kind of bounce off each other um and you kind of you create a, a positive place for athletes to go and compete and a, a spectators come and watch and i think I'll, I'll just say that as a fan like i think that's saying that uh, it's easy to spot that your ability oh thanks uh, mate yeah no I, I appreciate that and i'm and i'm glad that's the case because that is how we want it to be but not through forced or anything managed or staged that's just the way that that we are and it helps obviously that you know my, myself and and you and have known each other for, for 28, 29 years. You know, this guy's one of my best mates and mm. we have a laugh and we're very similar in character. And I'd probably say we're a lot like you and you won't tell me off for this because it's true. You know, I'm you're I'm like you, Dan. I prepare myself. I'm ready to rock <laughs> yeah. and roll. And you and like you, Martin, he'll just rock up with his sheet of paper. <laughs> and, and, and that's the way. Wing it. a suit on and he's ready to go. Mate, as long as he's got his tight trousers and his yeah. dapper shoes, mate, he's, he's, he's ready to rock and roll. And But I say that with love and jest and, and yeah. Ewan would laugh at that because he knows it's the case. I spend most of my time pre-meetings going through the names of athletes with Ewan and he runs up with his pad and he's got his field event list and we do pronunciations of yeah. how, we, how we don't, basically he doesn't destroy somebody's given name when he's introducing them. And myself and Jeff Whiteman, my colleague, sit in commentary in the stadium. We're like, here we go. It's the women's shot put now. Let's see how he butchers this one. And literally, <laughs> he'll butcher a name and me and Jeff will just laugh out loud. And, you can just, um, and Ewan will come back on my phone when I'm commentating because I'll text and stuff when we're, I'm working at the same time, I know. And he'll say, I killed that one, didn't I? And I said, absolutely slaughtered it dead, mate. Because <laughs> it'll butcher somebody's name. But that's how it works because that's, the best way to work in my opinion you love it you don't take it for granted and you give it the job you give the job the respect it deserves I gave that as an athlete and I give the respect to, to the job that any job that I do now oh, that's talk to me about before we go Villa <laughs> your two Villa Sorry. sympathizers <laughs> sympathizers sympathizers you know yeah well I'm a Palace fan so I'm a Palace sympathizer you're a Villa sympathizer wow. Um, what, what, what can we say, mate? What can we say? We're, um, well, I think we played all right the other night. The first game oh. back in the Premier League. And I was, I was like, oh, I wonder how this one will face up because they absolutely slaughtered us both times playing them both at Bramall Lane and at Villa Park. So, I, but when when we started, I thought, hold on, we look we look the fresh air. We look close. Oh, 100%. Quick, get to the ball. And we had the most opportunities. I just think, yeah, like there's probably lacking a little bit of freshness. But, yeah, I... If, if we play like yeah. that again, I'd be quite more than yeah, happy. I'd, yeah, the, the the bad news is it's Chelsea, Newcastle, and Wolves to come. Yeah. With uh, Chelsea being the next one, we you we know we're we're in trouble. I think Dan, you know, we got away with one at the weekend um, in terms of the technology being being on our side. But that's sport, you know, ups and downs, swings and roundabouts. Um, yeah. But you know, it's one of those. It's just defensively uh, uh, set pieces. We need to be better striking we need to be better I'm so excited John McGinn's back because when he's on form Grealish will get more service and yep. I don't know football is the emotional roller coaster that, that no other that no other sport gives you 
Um, and I'm just desperate to obviously stay with the top yeah. flight. You know, myself and Dan, we were there when we got promoted. We were there at Wembley. And, and I, I say it with without a, a, an ounce of jest. It's genuinely one of the best days of my life. <laughs> when, yeah. when Aston Villa got back promoted, you might you might get this one one day martin you know when you get promoted back in, in, into the uh, into the premier league it was awesome but no it's uh football football amazes me it's just such a sport that stands on its own isn't it guys in terms of everything it's kind of every other sport in the world and then there's soccer just up there with its finances with the way with the way it's run with with everything it just amazes me as a sport and i work in it now i've you know i've started doing five live um reporting on on football and um, it, it's 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 a different world. And I've had the couple of comments, oh, the little bird in, or um, excuse me, <laughs> excuse me, love, do you know where the toilets are? No, I don't work here. I'm actually working here. Um, so yeah. that, it's a, it's a fascinating sport to me. It honestly yeah. is. But in terms of Villa, well, Dean, I, in Dean Smith, we trust. Hey, Dan. Oh yeah. Um, I kind of want you to stay up because I've enjoyed the banner with Dan, but I'm I'm not hopeful. <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, John McGinn is big, been massive for you. I think he will be, and it uh, takes the pressure off Grealish a bit as well with the creativity. Yeah. And um, obviously, Grealish is a great player, but he's been marked out of the game. And I think you've got us at some stage in the next couple of weeks. Um, yeah. We are notable relegation. We relegate teams, so I hope we yes, don't do I it know. this year. Um, yeah, it would be good. I'd rather see Brighton go down, but um, we'll see. I'll see Brighton go down. Everyone on Brighton's like, oh, thanks, thanks for that, Mike. Thanks for it's that. Palace, yeah. It's Palace, Palace rivals. They've, got, they've had their time in the sun. They can get down now. <laughs> yeah, I used to love love your team. You had some great Crystal Palace, man. I remember because when I when I started infield was when the when the races and the, the meetings were at Crystal Palace. And I remember Martin, you were running, and mm. I remember you saying, you know, you're only a stone's throw away, and you're a Palace boy, and all that kind of stuff. And you've had some great players over the years. It has it has to be said. You've had a You've, re- you've really rode a, a, a massive tide, as has Aston Villa, isn't it, Dan? You know, we mm. let's not forget. You know, we have been there, and we both had our, our strong moments. But I just think that it's, this isn't going to be an easy ride. And I just, I just, you know, but, but the main thing for me last the weekend just gone down that the plat that Jack Grealish had was just it was out, it was yeah. it was it was an outstanding yeah. quality. I don't know. You know. I thought I thought barbers were shut, especially good ones. Uh, so. Yeah. Well, well, maybe oh, yeah. they are. Uh, well thanks a lot kath that has just been it's blown my mind you know speaking to you as always is, oh, is an absolute mind. pleasure but uh, it's been great to get an insight into into your life and and um, yeah. obviously we know you well but it'd be great for the listeners to to get those great snippets of wisdom oh you're more than welcome guys and i just hope i'm back sooner rather than later in terms of uh, calling your races, Martin, and your throws down, and hopefully it'll be before Tokyo. Well, thanks for listening, guys. Really hope you enjoy that part. Yeah, like uh, we went in there. Um, Kath is a, a voice uh, that I'm engaged. I listen to, and I really enjoy hearing her speak. And I felt like it was uh, it was really good for us uh, as uh, podcasters to get her on. And um, I hope you guys enjoy it. Uh, if you want to like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, you can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, um, at uh, Discustan, um, at Martin Rooney, at GRS Podcast. And um, yeah, let us know how you feel. If you like it or not, uh, let us know. Cheers. Thanks, guys. Cheers. <laughs>